Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, Corey, how are you doing today? Well, I'm. Uh, we're back into winter weather here, so uh, yeah, spring got put on hold. Evidently, I woke up to six inches of snow this morning, and oh, it's snowing yeah. all day. Well, you got. You probably deserve that. You know, our guest John Barkle. He lives here in the Banana Belt of Montana. Uh, we haven't had any snow today. John, welcome. Appreciate you coming back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate that. Yeah, we had what, an inch or two of hail out here on Friday, and it lasted until yep. about noon on Saturday. That was it. Yeah. See, Corey, it's, uh, John and I, we just practice this clean living stuff, so <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't get that kind of weather you got there in Central Idaho. So. Yeah, perfect equator-like weather, 400-inch bowls around every tree. I just don't know what we're doing wrong over here in Idaho. Well, you know, you, you'll get there, you know, give it time. But but really, you know why it snowed, it knew you were out there trying to scoop up all those early dropping antlers. And it said, no, we're going to put a bunch of snow over the top of these so Corey and Tyler can't come here and, and get the easy, quick, stri- quick strike on everybody. Yeah, there was nothing easy. The last week I went out with Isaac, we... Uh, you know, the elk are so spread out this year, and they didn't even bachelor up, some of them. Some of them just stayed by themselves way up high, didn't even move down. So we're finding one elk by itself, and three miles later, another elk by itself. And huh. they're going to be you, spread out. Do you, do you partake in that foolishness called the shed antler hunting? No, I don't. And honestly, I'd never even heard of shed antler hunting until I moved to Montana. Yeah, I I hang them in trees if I do find one. I I mean, this time of year, I mean, I'm glad that people are out doing it. You know, that means when I go fishing, there's fewer people at the fishing spot. But uh, so I wish more hey. people were fishing because that's we've uh, there's a lot of people with gas prices like there. I thought this is the year. Nobody's going to be out there. Yeah. Man, gas prices aren't slowing down horn hunters this year. That's what I've mm. heard from a couple really dedicated shed hunters that i know is that uh there's definitely people out in the woods looking really well the good news is you don't want to have to worry about me being out there so if you're invested in conoco or british petroleum i'm not going to help drive up your share price based (laughs) on how much gas i'm buying to go shed hunting but uh Hey, John, thanks for being back on the podcast. Uh, you were one of our earlier first guests when we started this chaos. and Really? You, yeah. You, wow. You, you've always been so generous with not just us, but, you know, so many people sharing your knowledge of so many things. And uh, since since the last time you've started your own little gig, I guess, can can we call it, what, what do you call knowledge of storms? Is it a teaching platform is it just storytelling what what do you got going there yeah i like to say knowledge from storms is a outdoor educational platform um it's not specific to hunting although you know i hunt a lot so i definitely reference that often and backcountry ski but yeah it's if you want to go out in the backcountry and 
and live and thrive and do your respective discipline, then, you know, I may have something to offer you. <laughs> may, huh? <laughs> ah, that's typical John Barklow, understated, <laughs> modesty, I may. So for, for those who didn't catch you on our previous podcast or other podcast, John, give them a little bit about your background of what makes you such an expert in this area because you are. Yeah, well, expert is kind of a loose term, but uh, <laughs> we, we use that term to describe all kinds of people, and we never use it to describe ourselves. But. Yeah, no, I think that's best. Don't don't use it. Don't ever use it to describe you know yourself. But uh, but anyways, yeah, I was uh, I was in the military for twenty six years, but a, a large portion of that twenty of those years was dedicated to teaching predominantly special operations troops how to kind of move around the mountains and and kind of live and thrive in these, you know, austere, unsupported environments. And then obviously with 9-11, there was a, a much sharper focus on taking that skill set to, you know, Afghanistan. So think very, you know, steep, rugged mountains and very remote. And I was able to not only develop teaching points and teaching curriculum and criteria, but we were also able to develop the clothing and the equipment that supported that as well. So clothing systems, backpacks, sleeping bags, things like that. So it was a really very unique, I think, um, learning experience for me because it wasn't just me going out and doing something or my friends, but then it was conveying these ideas to people in multiple different ways, seeing how those people interpreted that, seeing how they you know, then turn that into action and then was able to critique that, then go back and figure out how to maybe teach it differently or maybe learn new skill sets. So it was just wonderful feedback loop of information that really, you know, I think that's when I really started to learn for myself when I started to teach others. And so, you know, like I said, I, I did that for a while, retired. I am now the, the big game product manager at Sitka. So I was able to take some of that information, build out these clothing systems that, you know, I think have helped people like Corey in, in that hunt we were describing earlier, you know, not die uh, for sure <laughs> and, uh, and obviously be successful. Um, and so then I realized that, uh, you know, and COVID kind of did this when I was working from home and had a little time that I had to be nudged. Um, to, to go on social media, but I realized that I was being very selfish with my information and that, like I said, there, I, I, I probably have things or perspectives or ideas or knowledge that people may find valuable. And I was being really selfish by not sharing that. And so I decided to start. I like to say that uh, because it's it's my own platform and business, I reserve the right to quit at any time. Um, and so that's kind of like gives me my out and makes me sleep better at night sometimes. Uh, but it's been it's been really well received, and I'm honestly I'm having a blast. I'm learning a bunch. If I did a blooper reel just on social media alone, people would would uh, would roll over laughing. But no, I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, you know relearning some lessons. Um, teaching some people, seeing the, the feedback from people and, and kind of, you know, kind of uh, looking at their successes through, through, uh, through their eyes now. And it's, it's been a really cool journey. I didn't actually expect uh, when I started. Well, 
we're all we're all the better because of your willingness to share so thanks for not being being selfish but i'm i'm interested to see what list of questions Corey has because Corey did everything to try get himself killed up in southeast alaska <laughs> uh, a place that john you know those islands of the pacific in the northern pacific john has spent tons of time there and knows the equipment demands those conditions place. So I'm uh, I might just sit back and listen to this Q and A session of <laughs> Corey explaining how he survived and John saying how did you survive? <laughs> That's uh, we we definitely asked ourselves that, and it's still looking back. John said he watched the Alaska film again today, refreshed on it, and. Uh, felt our pains every step of the way and and like you said he's uh, got firsthand experience in a lot of that country and a lot of his i think experience and training came at the at the hands of southeast alaska's brutal terrain and and weather but yeah i don't know where we would even start first off i guess john before we jump in too much farther um knowledge from storms you mentioned social media and everything but they can find more information at knowledgefromstorms.com is that the website yeah correct i've got a website knowledgefromstorms.com i have a youtube channel and then uh on instagram it's just at jbarklow very cool uh, yeah, it's like like Randy said. I've I've known you since you started at Sitka. Which, how long has it been now? How long have you been at Sitka? Uh, about seven and a half years now. Yeah, so, yeah. So it's I, it's been a little been a little tenure. So <laughs> yeah, um, may, maybe I can start the conversation, Corey, by making a statement to you just in general about that hunt. So yeah. th- that that hunt and everything that went into that from the time you were dropped off to the time you were picked up quite frankly let's back it up and even talk about the planning leading up to that was a graduate level trip (laughs) that's not something that people do when they start right this is something that you have to work up to and even with all your experience uh everything that i could think of was thrown at you from the remoteness to the weather to the terrain to uh, animals being very uh, sparsely uh, located to bears to a partner that was sick and and injured so somewhat debilitated to horrible weather Uh, and then that's not so that's just the trip. Then you get what I estimate having hunted Roosevelt elk, a thousand to 1200 pound animal on the ground that you then had to figure out how to extract from the field. Uh, even if you didn't want to law requires that. And I saw the gear you used. Oh, oh, and by the way, you had a, uh, what I'll call not a survival situation, but a unplanned night out. I mean, literally it was everything that you know we talk about that my platform tries to prepare people for all rolled up into one trip and i don't know it was like six seven days and 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 i'm not and i'm not i'm not i'm not patting you on the back um because i know you but you guys crush that and the reality is that sucks 
It's hard. There's no perfect way to do it, but that you not only got there and got back and didn't lose anybody and didn't get hurt, although I'm sure it sounded like there were some tumbles and falls, but you were also successful in the ultimate goal of harvesting a Roosevelt elk with a bow, by the way, which I've hunted Roosevelt's and I don't know anybody that's actually ever killed one with a bow. So kudos to you guys for actually doing it, pulling it off and being as successful as you were all the way around. No, I appreciate that. And as you were listing all of the obstacles that we had, it, uh, j- like you said, just about everything that sucks about the outdoors can be experienced right there in, in one day. I mean, realistically, it's I've never been anywhere. You know, you get elements of different things, you know, whether it's heat, whether it's remoteness, whether it's steepness, but to put all of them together. And we were warned, you know, before that that's the probably the hardest hunt in Alaska. And you think about Alaska, you know, I think Alaska has the hardest hunts in North America for the most part. And then to take in and make that specific hunt one of the most difficult ones, uh, we, we were prepared, but I don't think you can ever be fully prepared for what, what it really is going to throw at you. Well, that's where you really fall back on, on your bag of tricks, right? On your experience, the partnership, Like I said, we could talk about this for hours, but the partnership alone, that bond that you all had that, you know, Donnie's hurt, we need to rally, the weather's bad. Obviously, you're only going to kill one bull on that trip. I mean, you might have gone in with the expectation of two, but (laughs) it was probably pretty obvious early on you're going to kill one. So just the partnership alone, um, the navigation that you really didn't talk about until you got cliffed out, but I know what it's like navigating in that type of terrain with zero visibility and you have, uh, you know, rain and, and vegetation. And, oh, by the way, you're probably thinking you're going to run into a bear at some point in time. Obviously you saw at least one. Um, there's so many aspects to that, that, I mean, really it takes a, a, you know, a very experienced or dare I say professional type team of people to go and actually pull that off outside of even the hunting and harvesting of the animal. Um, it just, there's so many layers to that hunt that, like I said, it, it started to like, give me flashbacks. I was sitting in my chair, kind of like <laughs> sweating and twitching and, you know, uh, tapping my foot and the, the whole thing, you know? Then a couple things, you know, Randy mentioned video always flattens topography. You know, you can never truly get a feel for how steep it really was. And there was one scene where we did, we, we cliffed out and we could not go down any farther. I mean, I'm standing, holding onto a tree, looking down straight down the hill going, if I take a step here, I don't know what's below if, if I'm to break loose. And, you know, we're standing there on the hillside and on the video, it just looks like, yeah, you're on a steep hill. I mean, you can get an idea that it's not flat, but you can't see how steep it is. But then John, our camera guy, to be able to continue telling the story with the camera in those conditions while he's packing, while he's doing all that, I mean, that adds a whole nother aspect to uh, to what he did on on that hunt. Yeah, yeah. N- navigation, I've been talking about navigation the last couple weeks and there's a couple more weeks to go. But, you know, I'd said that people don't get lost anymore with Onyx and and all that, like different mapping software, people don't get lost anymore. 
But the art of navigation is really kind of a dying art, right? And so this isn't a, a commentary about you guys, but it looked like you were maybe trying to, from what I could surmise, take a shortcut to get down to the lake. So a route you hadn't taken. But you know, when you start to look at a map with contour lines and and you you have to have a little bit of understanding of the terrain so you guys were at a disadvantage that you start to realize well geez if these are 50-foot contour lines and they start to stack together like we've already got i mean i you know the roosevelt's i've killed the hindquarters without the hawks were like 85 pounds right just a hindquarter so you're like how how can you possibly get down something super steep we haven't even gotten to the crampons yet. So you have to figure out, you have to figure out, you know, that, that navigation. And then the, the smartest thing you guys did, because most of the time, the hardest thing to do is turn around and go back up. It the was. smartest thing you guys did is turn around and go back up. Yeah. Because that's no, when people it was, it really was, it get was, into predicaments. Yeah. And we dropped down another probably 60 feet past where I said, I don't know if we're going to make it any farther. And then we went down 60 more feet and it got even worse. And I mean, it's so hard sitting there with 80 pounds on your pack, pouring rain, knowing you've already dropped, you know, probably 600 feet in elevation and looking back straight up that mountain going, we've got to climb back up out of here. You know, you, you want to push as far as you can, but at the same time, you know that you've already pushed to, to the edge of safety. And, and on that, you know, my first, I was probably 20 yards down the hill with crampons on and the crampons broke loose and I started sliding on rain gear and it was just wet grass and vegetation. And I went, I bet I went 15 or 20 yards at a pretty high rate of speed before I was able to get my heels dug in and slow down and get stopped. But I mean, something like that is just, if you don't get stopped, 80 pounds on your backs, pushing you so fast on that hill that, you know, it was... That's when I realized, okay, we can't take chances today. There's no, yeah. hey, let's go another ten yards farther. We've got to, we've got to be smart about this. Well, you, you, you know, your margin of error gets very slim, right? So what you, what you, what you uh, experience is what I call the Gore-Tex bullet, <laughs> because when you're wearing rain gear and you hit that, you know, slick grass or snow, like you accelerate a lot quicker than you think, and yep. and I'm guessing somebody clued you into bringing crampons but could you imagine if you didn't have crampons and or trekking poles you couldn't have even moved around that terrain no right? that, I mean, and that's i didn't wear them the first day dangerous. yeah it was dry the first day uh we weren't packing weight any of that and i didn't have crampons other than that i lived in those and they were yeah. i mean a cheap 35 40 pair off of amazon that I swear by now. I mean, anytime yeah. I go in something like that, they were, they were worth their money and, and a lot more. Yeah. So, you know, you're doing that. You have a, a, a partner who's already injured and sick. You don't know what his condition is. I mean, I know you could communicate with him. You've got zero, zero weather. So even if something happened, nobody's coming to get you. Like you have to, you have to be very, you, you have to play those odds and be cautious. And, and you guys did exactly like from my experiences doing that, like it was the most difficult thing for you to do, I'm sure, but it was absolutely the right thing that you had to do, um, you know, for your own well-being, let alone potentially Donnie's, you know, if you had to go and carry him out, like he's relying on you guys to get back to him. Yep. Absolutely. Um, 
You know, so, the other thing is, I don't want to drive this conversation, but the other, <laughs> I, but I think it's, a, but I think it's a perfect case in point of a trip where you talk to people and you say, I was wet the entire time I was out there, right? And even though you could potentially dry out, you know, you could dry your base layers at night, I'm sure. I know the gear, right? But people are like, well, I don't, you know, I can bring down and I can bring this and I can dry out and there's no way you're wet the whole time. And and you're like, you've never been in that environment then. (laughs) The humidity conspires against you along with the dew point, along with the saturated ground, like it all it all adds up to conspire for just a very wet and miserable climate. Yeah, and you can't explain. You know, we, we took a teepee with a stove, naively thinking, hey, we're going to be able to climb in here and warm up at night and dry everything out, and it's all going to be great. There's standing water inside the teepee, for one. I mean, we, you just you couldn't help it. We dug a trench around it. We did everything. Water is running down the stovepipe, and there's no way to completely seal that stovepipe hole. So water's just running down it like a river hitting the top of the stove. Secondly, I tried for an hour and a half to get a fire going, and I had every form of, I had pyro putty, I had all this fire starter stuff. I could not get wood to ignite up there. We were, we had a hatchet. I was breaking wood in half. I was shaving it and everything. Little shavings of wood wouldn't even light. So, I mean, all of the, the fire, all the fuel up there is just so densely saturated that you couldn't get a fire going. So that, that was one, that was the first thing. Okay. We aren't going to be able to dry out. I only took one extra change of clothes for that time thinking, Hey, we're going to be able to dry out so I can just swap out one gear while the other's drying. And like you said, I think I was equally as wet from the inside as from the outside because you're wearing rain gear and yeah, it's, it's breathable. We have pit zips, all of that, but it doesn't, it's not fully breathable. You're still producing moisture inside plus the moisture from the outside. And then, like you said, that humidity, everything was wet and everything stayed wet. So my only refuge, literally, I kept the inside of my little two man tent, I kept it completely dry. I would completely undress outside it in the vestibule and then climb in. And I made sure that my sleeping pad and my sleeping bag did not come in contact with anything wet because that was all I had to climb into. And I knew if I, if I was able to undress and climb into that sleeping bag, if it was dry, I knew I was safe. And yeah. so for six days, the inside of my sleeping bag got no moisture and the outside of it stayed dry as well. Yeah. No, it's such a critical point. And I think that the video did a really good job of showing that. But I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the fire because you guys had a fire the first night, yep. your unplanned night out. Of course, that was, you know, you were on top. It was a little drier. The, the humidity wasn't what it was later on. But, you know, often you hear people say, well, if I get in trouble, if I get wet, if I get cold, I'll just build a fire. And it's like <laughs> that. So sometimes... But if that is your default answer, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And it's a very sobering fact when you try to do what you just described. And, you know, after three hours of effort, the most warmth you're getting is the physical exertion of trying to blow on the fire to get it to sputter some smoke. You're like, wow, like all we have to rely on is our clothing is our shelter, is our sleeping bag for, you know, what could be potentially survival. I mean, you know, Donnie was laying there. He's sick as a dog. He's cold. He's shivering. He's got a fever. He can't get out and move around. Like, you know, 
that he was completely reliant on that equipment. He wasn't reliant on any kind of external heat source. So yeah, it's a, that that's that's where all this you know stuff kind of leads where you're like trying to you know purchase the right gear or build the right thing or test the right product all those things lead up to a hunt like i said graduate level um that you guys got to experience oh, i'm laughing with you all in six or seven days but uh, i mean it made for an amazing video for sure but yeah yeah. No, and like you said, I, I was one that said, I can get a fire going anywhere. And I always have. I mean, here in Idaho, we'll go out, you know, cougar hunting with hounds or something in the winter and get stuck out overnight or shed hunting in the spring and get into bad situations where it's, you know, raining and then snowing and freezing overnight. I can always get a fire going. You find a dead tree even in the middle of a downpour and snap open one of the branches, it's dry enough on the inside that you can get a fire going. And, you know, sub-zero temperatures, middle of a rainstorm, it's never been an issue, but I've never experienced saturation like that up there. There was no amount of flame that was going to dry that wood out and get it to burn. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, you know, a couple other uh, notes that I made, you know, today is uh, like, night movement like you can't move through some of that terrain at night even with a headlamp you know it's like it's dangerous you're you're better off like you guys did you know stay in place try to ride out the night at least it looked like you had a tarp um (laughs) you know know the story on that we uh, as we as we were moving in on the elk so we didn't plan on staying out We did not prepare to stay out. It was beautiful, clear weather. We weren't supposed to get any rain until 10 o'clock the next morning. So I didn't plan for food for dinner. I didn't plan for staying overnight, for shelter, for anything warm. I had a vest, and that was it, a base layer and a vest. And uh, as we're moving in on this bulb, right before I shot it, I look over and I'm like, what is that over there? So I pull up my binoculars. Somebody had abandoned their tent there at some point in the in the past. And there was a ripped up uh, rain fly off of a tent that was wadded up in the rocks there. So once we made the decision to stay, I said, I'm going back and getting that rain fly and at least putting it up over us, hopefully to trap in some of the heat. Didn't work to trap in heat. Uh, the heat that we were producing from that fire was so minimal that I sat there literally shivering all night. And then once it started raining, with, there were three of us crammed under this little ripped in half uh, rain fly and... There was no way to keep out of the rain, so we were getting wet. The wind was blowing about 30 miles an hour, and uh, I abandoned the fire and said, I've just got to start walking. That's The fire's not producing any heat. I've got to move. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, hindsight, right? So it's twenty twenty. but uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I think you were lucky to get the tarp, but uh, yeah, especially in that environment. I actually, you know, almost in any environment, like what I like to say is your clothing is kind of your first line of defense against the elements. Like, you know, the show naked and afraid. Yeah. yeah the reason they're afraid is because they're naked. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you need that clothing. So if, and you guys obviously had good clothing, right. But if you, if you get to the point where, you know, you have a puffy jacket, um, you have a beanie, you have a ground pad to sit on and you have some rain gear to block the wind or, or some rain, right? And then you can try to seek shelter. Like, you know, maybe, maybe, and I don't know, you, you probably shouldn't have moved and, but, you know, maybe you could have dropped down and gotten under a bush. But, you know, when you're 
when you're getting those unplanned nights out, like not truly a survival situation, but it certainly could have become that, right? If if the weather was was worse or something like that. But you know, that's why it's like. Uh, you know, I always like try to plan contingencies and you don't want to carry too much and you don't want to like, you didn't need to bring a stove and food necessarily. But, you know, when you get into situations like that, you're like, man, what was the, you know, would that 12 ounces extra of a clothing layer been that, you know, big a deal in, in hindsight. Um, and you can get away with a lot down here. You just can't get yeah. away with it up in that country. No, that's a thing. I mean, Donnie's the only one that had rain gear. So he had, uh, I think he had his jet stream jacket, and I don't even remember this when I go back and watch the video, but he gave, I think he gave me his rain jacket and he kept the jet stream or vice versa. And then he gave John his rain pants and uh, Donnie always has a big food bag. So he had extra bars and everything. We had, I'd, I'd killed two ptarmigan on the way in there and then we had the elk there. So we had meat. I mean, it wasn't like we were sitting there starving, but yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, there, there was no comfort food for sure. Yeah. But, uh, Don, Donnie was prepared, but like you said, had we thrown a dehydrated meal with a stove and fuel and a puffy and a rain shell in there, that might have added five pounds total. Most likely not even that much, but five pounds, you aren't going to notice. I was, I was light anyways. I was probably at 25 pounds in my pack. So, I mean, a pretty light day pack with water and everything. So, another five pounds wouldn't have said, oh, we aren't going to be able to make it that far over there. And I think looking forward, that was my number one lesson, or the first lesson I learned anyway was, if you're going to go out and expect to go for six or seven hours straight in that kind of terrain and condition, pack the extra five pounds. Hands down, no question asked. Don't even think about it. But you didn't necessarily expect to hike seven hours to no. find elk, though, either. One way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we knew we knew where the elk were. We saw when we were flying in, and I said, okay, I'm looking at the, you know, at the map here, and it's this far. It'll take us two and a half, three hours to get there. And the one drainage that we had to cross, I was looking at it thinking we can be across that in 30 minutes. It took us two and a half hours to get across that because there's one main drainage, but there's about six draws that you don't even see. And that's, somebody said that, that when you're looking at a map of that area, there are a lot of 99-foot cliffs hidden in that 100-foot mm. contour. Exactly. Yep, very much. I mean, I love moving through that that high alpine country. It's amazing stuff. You know, once you're up there, you feel like you can cruise, and I like that you can see, but there's so much micro-terrain that just chews up time and adds vertical, um, you know, that you just can't plan for, uh, you know, what whatsoever. Um I was curious about, uh, I know you're supposed to be asking me questions, but I was really curious about (laughs) like the, your footwear, your socks, obviously you guys had gaiters, which is totally clutch in that, in that environment. But how did, how did that, how did that system work for you guys? I mean, you're covering a lot of ground. It didn't seem like you were getting your feet chewed up too bad. My feet were hammered like they've never been before. Tips of every one of my toes, so not on the very tip, but on the knuckle of all of my toes, was wore raw. Uh, I was in wet boots from when we got back to camp after spending the night out. So it would have been day two, middle of the day two. From then on, my feet were never dry. And I had, I think, three pair of socks, maybe four pair of socks. I was able to get socks dried out for the most part. 
but within three minutes of putting them in my boot, the boot, I just couldn't get the boots dry. And it wasn't, you know, the boots didn't fail. The gaiters didn't fail. The rain gear didn't fail. It's just a matter of you can't keep drying that. And that was, um, you know, footwear's hard. And, and when you're walking that far in those kind of conditions in mud, you know, the trekking poles, we'd put the trekking pole in the ground and it would sink in about a foot and then you'd pull it back out. And I'm using the, the, trifold ones that you know have the shock cord in the middle to pull them all together and every single time i'd pull that out of the ground you'd hear this thunk swack thunk swack as that pulls apart and then snaps back together every step and so your boots you know they're sinking in you're pulling up mud with that and uh yeah i was i mean we had the gators the rain gear and the boots. And I had them overlapped and laid in there like you would want to build a roof, you know, so no water's running down inside of another one. And you just couldn't keep the the moisture out of the boots. And it could have been, you know, internal moisture from sweating, running down the base layer, running down the socks, whatever. But there was standing water in my boots pretty much the entire time. Yeah. And once those boots get wet, any boots like that get wet, doesn't matter the brand, they're not going to dry in the field. No, they're, they're not just in that not. condition. Yeah. There's something called a vapor barrier sock. So Randy, remember when uh, your mom used to put your foot in a bread bag before she put <laughs> yep. it in the winter boot? <laughs> yep. So that's like the most basic form of a vapor barrier sock. But, you know, oftentimes in those kind of conditions, when you know the boot's not going to get dried, it's normally cool or even cold. So they're freezing at night you can dry your sock out, but then you can put the vapor barrier over the dry sock. And then that protects you from the cold, wet boot. Now your foot will sweat till at least there's a hundred percent humid environment inside, but it takes many hours. So as opposed to three minutes, it's more like three hours. And then, you know, so that at least buys you some time every day, but that's just one of those things that you're never like, there's just no perfect system really. Um, to, to get that. And it's so critical because if you can't walk, like, you know, you're, you're helpless in that country. Yeah. And that's one thing I noticed. I mean, I was so cold, you know, it's 46 degrees, something like that, which you think, you know, 46 degrees, you know, that's not freezing. I'm fine. You get saturated wet in that when we would stop just to eat or take a break, I had 10 minutes maybe, and then it's like, hey, we got to go. I'm cold, and I'm not going to warm up just sitting here. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, that definitely was a thought that, hey, if I break an ankle, if I tweak a knee, and I'm stuck here and can't move, I don't have very long. I mean, you literally will go hypothermic in, you know, I don't know the time, but 46 degrees soaking wet, chilled to the bone from hiking, uh, you, get, you get stationary too long, and it doesn't take long to go hypothermic. Yeah, no, not at all. And and you have to, so those are, you know, it just, you have to kind of keep that in mind with what you do and how far you extend yourself and, you know, the route you take or the risk you, you take. Um, Cause you can't, you just can't afford that in that country. Yeah. And that's the other hard part that, you know, I, I just don't know how to manage the moisture when it's that wet outside. You know, it's so steep. The train is so steep and you have so much weight on your back. You're exerting energy, even though it's 46 degrees out. You know, you think, well, you know, if the rain gear works, it's keeping the water out from the outside. But realistically, you're producing so much moisture on the inside 
you know, whether you're in rain gear or not, you're going to be sweating like crazy working that hard. And just that moisture management was, was brutal. And like you yeah. said, fortunately, I was able to climb in dry to my sleeping bag every night and find a system that worked to put on at least somewhat dry clothing in the morning. It was never dry, but at least it wasn't completely you know, I wrung it out at night as best I could and literally would get, you know, a couple cups of water out of my base layers just from all the moisture. And you want to talk about stink? There is, I've sweated and been on a backcountry hunt for eight days without any kind of a bath or a shower or anything. When you're wet like that and nothing dries out, I stunk like I, it was a smell that I have never smelled before. I was uh, I was wondering about that poor pilot that picked you guys up. <laughs> I did stuck, too. Stuck in that small plane. I'm like that poor guy. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> but you know, I'd rather have it be 30 degrees or less than 32 degrees to 50 ish degrees because when it's when it's colder, generally it's a drier climate. Yep. And, you know, you can kind of prepare for that, but that environment you're talking about, it's that, that middle ground that's so, so difficult. And, you know, what, what nobody talks about is when the dew point and humidity or what you talked about, not to get into the science of it, but it's actually when rain gear actually performs the worst it, it doesn't actually breathe almost at all because you have a very saturated environment inside the garment and a very saturated environment outside the garment. There's nowhere for it to move, so it just stays where it is. And, and that is just a difficult, difficult uh, environment to work in. And, you know, if you hadn't, uh, you have, but if people hadn't experienced that before, you know, they may blame the gear or they may blame themselves, and it's like no this is just a this is just a situation that you're in right now it's literally to me the the worst kind of climatic conditions uh you can be in because you're right on the edge of hypothermia you know you're you're, it, you're like it almost teases you that it's going to get warm enough and you kind of are warm when you're moving and as soon as you stop then you cool off right away and so it's just it's just this constant ping pong effect back and forth <laughs> Yeah, and typically, you know, you have a day off. You can take a day off and rest and, you know, all of that. But we had to push ourselves for five straight days there. And, you know, you're thinking constantly, I've got to push as hard as I can, but I've got to save energy for tomorrow. And, you know, I, I can't afford to stop. We can't just sit under a tree for two hours and take a nap or a rest because you just can't stay warm. So you've got to be continually going. And uh, the one thing I wanted to ask John was, Going into the sleeping bag with wet clothes, I didn't have the confidence to do that. So I didn't dry my base layers out each night. And I mean, it, it was on my mind every night as I'm climbing in the sleeping bag, I should wear these because I know I've heard you talk about it. I've heard lots of other people talk about climbing in your sleeping bag with wet base layers and it'll dry them out. So can you talk about that? And, and I'm going to do it. I mean, I'm going to prove it in a controlled environment, at least here, before I get somewhere like that. Because last thing I wanted to do was climb in my only dry space yeah. and not be able to dry it out. Yeah, no, for sure. No, this is this is a great question, and it'll maybe dovetail into a question I, I wanted to ask you back. But so, first of all, not not to not to I, I'm not asking you what brand or bag you had, but what I would say is that 
in an environment like that or any environment you're going into, what I like to say is you have to build the clothing system and the sleeping system as one unit. So the sleeping bag to me is an extension of the clothing system. So during the day, the puffy jacket keeps me warm at rest breaks. And at night, there's just a different silhouette of a puffy jacket that I climb inside to insulate me the same way, right? So if you have the wrong bag, or maybe I should say an insulation that's not up to the task, if you were to get in there wet, you would probably compromise that one uh, respite you have from, from the cold and the damp, right? But if you work them together and build them in conjunction, then, well, you've seen the videos I've done, but worst case scenario, you could get in there completely soaking wet and it would keep you warm at a minimum. So let's just say you don't get in there soaking wet, but maybe just uh, base layers that will dry out. Now that sleeping bag, if it's got like a synthetic insulation, it'll manage that moisture. So that bag may get a little, it will get heavier over time because the moisture is not going to move all the way through for the same reason it's not going to move through the rain gear, but it's going to pull the moisture off that clothing into the insulation and it's going to still continue to keep you warm. So you're going to be able to dry out at night the moisture will move into the bag. Some will move through just because your body heat's pushing it, right? Um, but but it'll that's that's I I like to say like that's my last line of defense from the cold is that sleeping bag. So you, you did the right thing to not compromise it if you hadn't tested it. But this is why I'm such a huge proponent of training with whatever gear you assemble uh, as a system as a unit for the conditions you expect to encounter. So if you and I are living in Arizona, we're going to go all on a Arizona elk hunt. I mean, let's be honest, for the most part, it's easy living. Now I've had some really poor weather in Northern Arizona in November for sure. But my point is that's a far cry from coastal Alaska in, in September, right? Where you know, it's going to be wet, you know, it's going to be damp. And so you pick the right tool for the job, you pair the clothing and the sleep system together, and then you test it. And, and it would absolutely, I can tell you that if I was there with you, I would have been getting in, in all my clothes every night into my sleeping bag. Now, not right, not my rain gear, but that, that's what I would have been doing, but I've got practice. I've got confidence. I've got the system that works, but you know, when people kind of, look at that and go, well, you know, nobody would ever do that. And I'm like, okay, so what about if you're on a float trip? What about if you're pack rafting for shed antlers or, you know, into a whitetail spot or, you know, or in Alaska? I mean, there's so many ways to get wet that you may have to, you know, set up a camp and and ride out the night and try to dry yourself out or just continue to, uh, you know, make, make the situation worse. That, that That's where... That's where I think all that begins to come into play. Yeah. No, and, and that's, you know, for me, just not having that confidence of knowing it was going to dry out. But w- will there ever be a point where the sleeping bag becomes saturated? Will, will it continue moving that moisture night after night? Uh, you know, as you're climbing in there wet, it's obviously not going to move all the moisture out every night. But will it continue to cycle through and you'll be able to dry out night after night? Or is does it reach a point where it's like sleeping bags just heavy? It's soaked now and and not working. 
So a great, great answer. So the 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 moisture will continue to move through, but it will it will move through at a slower rate over time because the insulation. It's not that the insulation's wet. It's that there's more moisture getting trapped in the insulation, right? Or depending on the type of insulation, the loft begins to uh, clump or compress, so you don't have as much dead air space. So that's where you're going to get a reduction in the warmth of the bag. But, you know, I've been out where same conditions as you, and every day you're wet and every day you get in there. But th- th- depending on the insulation, like again, like a synthetic, even though it's wet, it's going to continue to, one, insulate you, and two, keep you warm. But, but here's, here's the other thing you have to take into consideration outside of a ground pad is at that point, we already talked about you can't start a fire. Like you can't. It's just, it's a non-starter. It's not going to happen. So what is the heat source that ultimately keeps you warm? And ultimately helps you dry out. It's your body. It's the internal combustion engine or your metabolic engine that's your body, right? So uh, that now goes into what do you bring to fuel that engine? What is your food? What is your hydration? What are the calories? What does that look like? So, you know, I was curious because, you know, obviously I saw you eating some bars and things, and I know that there's plentiful water, however you were uh, <laughs> purifying it or filtering it, but but you had to have, my guess is you had to have had a pretty good idea of your nutrition and hydration because you were continuing to put out a huge effort. You were continuing to have at least enough metabolic heat to dry out some of that clothing at night, right? And although you're never going to be able to eat or hydrate enough, I like to call this, when we go in the backcountry, I just classify it as crisis nutrition. You're, you're not going to be able to eat or drink at optimal levels, but you have to eat and drink well enough to succeed at what you guys just did. Like literally imagine if we said, hey, Corey, uh, I'm going to put 85 pounds in your back. I'm going to put you in steep mountains. I need you and two other buddies to travel. And the last time I heard it was 22 miles. So I'm guessing it was more like a marathon or something, maybe more. (laughs) And you'd be like, oh my God, what you would bring to eat and hydrate would be more than you probably ate and hydrated over the course of five days. And you'd have brought that for one. So, you know, whatever you guys did, you nailed that. But but that's where you have that's where all this begins to come together. Because if you can't fuel the body, yeah, at a certain point you're still gonna put off a little heat. And yeah, what you have is still gonna insulate you, but you're still gonna get cold and start to spiral because hypothermia is just losing more body heat than you can retain. So if I can't if I can't feed that to create body heat and I'm losing it that's where you get into hypothermia, right? So you guys nailed that. I don't know what you did. At least cognitively, you were talking coherently. That guy was running <laughs> cameras. Like you guys had your shit together. You know, you're, you're, you're in reaching back and forth. You're communicating with the air, the, the uh, air base. Like, so you had that figured out, it looks like. Yeah, you know, and I think nutrition wise, when we hunt here, it, you know, we're putting out a pretty good effort. And so we've realized that, hey, I can remember on a Wyoming elk hunt, gosh, what's it been, four years ago, three, four years ago, I ate 44 or 4,600 calories 
in one day on our last day there, and I was still craving food. Like I was hungry. And I just remember thinking, I don't eat half this much on a normal day. If I ate 4,600 calories sitting at home, you know, I would, I'd put on five pounds a day. But in that situation, and especially after eight days of doing that, on that last day, I just, I couldn't eat enough to, to fill the tank. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, I had everything planned out. Each day was a, was a package and I had, you know, different sources of calories. So it wasn't like it was all protein or it wasn't all carbs. You know, I had it broken up there and, and obviously, um, we've dialed that in over several years. And so my, my food source in Alaska really, the difference, like you said, we had to make sure we were producing heat rather than just producing energy to go up a mountain and chase an elk. So, uh, yeah, we didn't, I don't think I ever felt hungry, like I was lacking nutrition and then water. I mean, Donnie just put his cup outside his tent and let the rain fly. I mean, literally it would fill it. I think he said it was taking 15 minutes or something to fill two cups, you know, whatever that is. <laughs> 16 ounces of water or something uh it was just running off of it but yeah we had there was water sources everywhere we had a um i forget john uses a platypus i think and i had a, a ketodyne just a pump filter and there was never a problem finding a a stagnant water source to filter from yeah were, were you guys feeling like after that that type of physical effort were you starting to get almost nauseous to where like big meals and things just didn't seem that appetizing to you and you were doing more snacks or what did that <laughs> no, look like? No, uh, in fact, I saved my my favorite meals purposely towards for the end of the hunt. And uh, we used the, the peak refuel or the, the dehydrated meals we took. And man, beef stroganoff and home-style chicken and rice never tasted so good as those last couple <laughs> nights. And, you know, that last grind going back up to, to our spike camp when we we're packing meat, that's all I was thinking about was I can't wait to get back and have some beef stroganoff. And so, no, we never got to a point where, where food wasn't appealing. Yeah. Um, I, I think that speaks to, you know, your guys' experience because – you know, the, the folks I talk to, they get, it really surprises them sometimes. Like, you know, they either carry not enough. And so we, you have those issues or they carry so much that they can't consume those calories. Not because, not because they're not hungry, but it's not, it's not the right food. It's not appealing. You know, yeah. like how many, you, know, you can't only eat so many bars, right? And you can only eat, you know, I mean, I, I, I know on certain trips that I've been on that, I mean, I, I literally bring a bottle of some type of like almond oil, olive oil, something like that. And just literally do shots of oil because it's 120 calories per teaspoon, I believe. Yeah. And, and so it's like, it, and it doesn't sound appealing right now, sitting here talking to you guys, <laughs> but out there it's like, man, I need a shot of oil. Right. <laughs> like, hmm. Um, it, it's, it's the craziest thing sometimes, but you know, it, you just have to figure that out over, like everybody's got to figure it out for themselves. You can't eat the same thing I do. I can't eat the same thing Randy does. Everybody's got to kind of figure it out, you know, for themselves to kind of keep moving. Yeah. And that's one thing I did pack was packets of peanut butter and almond butter. And 
you know, and that's like you said, that's huge. Just it's a different kind of, of nutrition. And the bars are great, but they're usually loaded in, in a lot of carbs. And then the dehydrated meals are great because they're loaded in a lot of protein. Uh, but if you don't get enough fats out there, it's, you know, you can lose energy pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, I can I can lose a few pounds. I got plenty to burn. I got a couple. I got a couple marathons on me. So food food generally isn't the biggest issue. It's just keeping the metabolism stoked. For me, it's all about hydration. I have to yeah. hydrate far more out there. But you know, that's what I was going to get to. Is when you get to the point where you guys are wearing rain gear because you have to, and then you're moving. We already talked. It's not going to breathe you're literally dehydrating yourself as you're moving and then have to be conscious of that to rehydrate enough so that you can continue to, to operate out there. Yeah. And that's you know, one of the things I've noticed in, in cold weather, we never drink enough because it's cold. You yeah. just don't feel, uh -huh. you know, it's 110 degrees and you're hiking up a mountain, you're drinking everything you've got. When it's 12 degrees and you're hiking up a mountain, you aren't drinking at all. Like you can go mm -hmm. clear to the top of the mountain and never take a drink, but you'll still dehydrate. And that's another thing in Alaska that everything's so wet that you're not thinking about getting water inside you. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to keep water out of your shell and you aren't thinking about putting it inside of you. And so we did, you know, I, I learned to carry a bladder and uh, use a hydration system like that because I just don't stop to pull out a water bottle. I just won't do it. You know, I'm mm -hmm. it's too much effort, take the pack off and get a bottle out. So having that bladder, you know, we would fill it up with three liters every day and make sure that when I got back to camp, we were having to pump more water for dinner. And we definitely kept, uh, kept up on the hydration, I think. Yeah. It sounded like you guys had a tough time finding a campsite, finding any <laughs> type of flat, flat ground up there, huh? Yeah, we, uh, our first campsite, you know, I'm looking around going, well, there's got to be someplace dry you can throw a tent. And there just, there wasn't, the ground was not dry. And we didn't take any tarps or anything to put under it. And, you know, it, it definitely, I, I gained some uh, confidence in my tent because it didn't, no water came up through the bottom and no water came in through through the top or anywhere else unless I took it in there. So that was good. But yeah, just finding, a, you know, the place I ended up pitching my tent for our spike camp was just in a little depression. And the reason I did that was because it was the only place I could get out of the wind, at least to break the wind in the first two feet of the tent. So I wasn't laying in the wind and knew the water would be able to run down and, and not stack up in there. But yeah, it was, I had just basically enough room for me to lay down between a couple rocks and it's tough to find a flat spot. Well, it didn't look like there was even enough room for your cameraman at that spike camp to, you know, pitch a tent right next to you. He, he probably could have been within 20 or 30 feet. I mean, he chose to be 200 yards up the hill for, you know, I think he's just antisocial, but it, uh, <laughs> I'm down setting my tent and I turn around and look and there's no tent there. I'm like, where'd you put your tent? And he's like, oh, it's back over here. And yeah, he was, he was off by himself. Well, that, that campsite selection can be so critical. And, you know, obviously that, the terrain, the weather's going to dictate, you know, what's the lesser of two evils? Do I sit in a little depression where maybe it's kind of comfortable and try to channel water around me because it's not going to be exposed to the nuclear winds out there? But yeah, I was on a goat hunt one time on the south end of Kodiak Island and we got trapped in our tents for four days. It got so bad. It ended up being we were on the edge of a typhoon 
uh, didn't didn't know it at the time, but uh, you know it got so bad that we had a bear fence around our camp. We had a teepee pitched for our cook shack. We had to collapse the teepee, uh, you know, when we weren't in it, and and we can only get in it for a couple hours in the evening when it kind of calmed down. But it was so bad that I had I don't I still to this day don't know where they came from, but I had worms night crawlers like somehow get pushed up out of the ground because it was so uh you know so saturated i had worms all over my tent i inside i had worms all over my sleeping bag i mean you know the book i had brought because they didn't have you know like kindles back then but like the book i had was completely saturated i ended up just you know but it was horrible how it became so so wet inside that tent, you know, and that's like your little sanctuary that I, I was like trying, you know, you're sponging it out or using a sock or whatever it is. And yeah, that was, uh, that was one of the more enjoyable experiences I've had just laying there in the typhoon. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, and that's, a, that's the thing. I, I can't sit like I can't, I mean, I know most of us probably can't sit and don't like to. I just can't lay there. I, I probably would rather get up and go walk around in the rain and be soaking wet than sit in a tent to stay dry. And obviously, if you're hunting, it's it's not efficient at all to be out there. But fortunately, we were packing, and I knew we could, we could at least keep moving because, man, there is nothing worse. There is no slower day than sitting in a tent with nothing to do. If you hadn't killed that bull on the first day or the the next morning when the weather was good, do you do you think you'd even had an opportunity? Do you, I mean, I don't think, think so. We, we did down, or you know, we covered the country. We shot the bull in, obviously, because we had to go back and pack the meat from the kill site. Uh, we covered that. We covered deep timber. We covered flat. We covered steep, and we never saw an elk, never heard a bugle, never saw a track the rest of the time. So, I mean, there's we're talking 150 or 160 elk on the entire island uh, in that particular area. That one herd was there with a couple bulls, and who knows where they go when it rains, but they didn't go anywhere that, that we went. So, yeah, trying to find an elk, and that's why I've told several people, I have no doubt if we wouldn't have had that clear day on opening day, we wouldn't have killed an elk just because yeah. you can't find them. You can't hunt them. You can't hear you just, you can't glass. I mean, there's just, there's no way to, to find elk in that terrain. Yeah. I, I did a hunt the the first Roosevelt I killed again with a rifle, uh, and never killed one with the bow, but, um, yeah. So we get dropped off on one side of the Island and our, the idea was, uh, a little different than yours, but our idea was we were just going to, you know, hike the island with our packs on our back until we found the elk. And then eventually, depending on, you know, if we were at the halfway point or not, we would either go back to that beach or we would continue across the island to the other side. And so we get off the boat and the gentleman's loitering offshore and we're you know, taking off our hip boots and stuff, and we're going to throw them on the boat. We don't want to carry that stuff, of course, right, in our dry bags. And, uh, you know, our guns are just laying there, uh, just unloaded. And, uh, you know, we live there. We're we're residents. We know what we're doing. And the guy, the guy starts motoring to shore, and he's waving like this. And we're trying to figure out what he's saying to us. Finally, we hear bear. He's saying something about a bear. And we turn around, 
And literally at the high tide line of the beach, about 50 yards away, this beautiful, almost cinnamon-colored nine-foot brown bear is just walking right at the high tide line right past us, right? So, of course, everybody's scrambling for their gun, loading. Bear doesn't care. He could care less. Anyways, we hiked to the top of the mountain, found the elk right away, ended up shooting a bull. But here's the difference, Corey. I had four other full-grown men with me. So we killed that bull. We quartered him up, which is like quartering up a horse. I think you talked about that in your video. You didn't say it that way. But then I had five, there were five grown men to carry this elk. We took the hide too, but to carry this elk. And we just kept hiking, spiked out and kept hiking across the island to to get out of there. Um, Those things are absolute beasts. And I am not somebody who likes to go back for multiple trips. One, because of the situation you ran into up there, which is, listen, there's a really good chance, even in your, in the Alpine, like you're going to run into a bear. But if you're in the vegetation, like it's just almost yep. a, a death wish, you know? Um, but anyways, that, that, that hunt worked yep. out okay. But I was thinking about that when I was watching that video. No, and we've had, I mean, there were people that questioned, why'd you guys go back to camp without hauling meat the first trip? Um, You know, all of that. And and honestly, we were so close to hypothermia from staying out overnight. Uh, We didn't know how we were going to get the meat back. So to carry it seven hours all the way back to camp didn't make sense. And we ended up going halfway and then finding a route down to the lake. So it would have been unproductive to carry it back there. The other thing is there's no way to keep the meat dry. I mean, you've got game bags, but here you hang it in a tree and even in a hard rainstorm, game bags might not even get a drop of water on them. Up Mm -hmm. there, there were no trees. There were literally no trees that we could hang it in. We had to put the game bags on a rock and it cooled. You know, we got the meat, it was all boned out and it cooled just fine. Um, But yeah, we, we couldn't carry it back. Turned out to be only two of us packing, and with an elk that size, it was not a, a one-trip deal. And I've told several people, the only way you could ever convince me to go back and do that hunt is if I had four guys who are willing just to pack meat. Mm-hmm. I can pack all my gear. I'm fine with that. I can hunt. I can pack my load of meat, but I don't ever want to have to make a multiple-trip pack again in that kind of condition and that kind of terrain. Yeah. Were you guys able to, or did you uh, bone it out at all? Oh, it was hundred percent boned out. Yeah. I, yeah. I know some, it, it, it depends on the unit up there that, you know, some, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't generally elk you can, but, um, yeah, no, it, I mean, obviously meat care because of the temperature is not that big an issue, but it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's the predators up there, you know, be yeah. it wolves or bears and, you know, in the past on, on different hunts, not where I'm trying to count every ounce where you could take some some garbage bags, you could put the meat in the garbage bag and then put it in some of that water yeah. with rocks on top. And, you know, a lot of times that, that'll keep them at bay at least for a little while. But, uh, yeah, no, that, but see, that's a whole nother aspect. So like, I'm a big proponent of what I call the care and feeding of the trip. And so you're, you're really, you're really experienced. You're a really experienced elk hunter, right? You you know how to shoot the bow. You know how to call. You know the animal behavior. You know how to quarter up the bull. You you have those really technical skills dialed. 
The other side you also have dialed is what we've talked about most of it is what I call the care and feeding. So you could plan the trip, you could uh, feed yourself, you could clothe yourself, you could set up a shelter, you could select a campsite, you could do all those things, right? You could get into a, a, a pseudo survival situation, you, you knew how to manage that, you knew how to communicate. But so many people nowadays, it seems like, you know, they want to get proficient at calling, they want to get really good at shooting, but they don't actually have mastered the skill sets to to commute through the environment, to live there uh, easy enough that they can then implement those kind of more technical skills, right? The shooting, the calling, uh, the animal behavior part. Um, you know, you, you kind of have to get out and train. I'm a you know big proponent of like, hey, just go backpacking. Like I, we're probably all of the age where, you know, we, we either grew up backpacking or went backpacking with our, our family or, you know, our friends. And you kind of learn like how to live out there and be comfortable. And like I said, collect water, feed yourself, light your stove, set up your tent, select your campsite, all those things, navigate. Um, that's why what you did in that trip was like such a graduate level because you had to have, I don't want to use mastery too too loosely, but you really did have to master all those skills because of the challenging environment the whole thing was kind of put under, um, you know, to pull that off. Yep, for sure. And, it, and it's, you know, it goes back to, I'm 46 years old. Um, I've been in the outdoors my entire life. And I can remember my first true backpacking trip. I was 18, had just graduated high school, and it was an external frame backpack with a green army canvas duffel with everything I could possibly stuff in there. It must have been 90 pounds. I mean, I, I took a fry pan. Yeah, I took a fry go. pan yep. and a stick of butter. There you, you go. Know, and I took, I took cans of pork and beans. I mean, just oh, we yeah. didn't have backpacking gear back then. And so, you know, I've, I've learned the hard way, like most of us have, that, you know, I've done it the wrong way enough times in good conditions that... I've dialed things in so that when you do get in those bad situations and bad conditions, at least that portion, the living portion, the the commuting portion, like you said, is at least dialed enough that it doesn't become too dangerous. You don't mm -hmm. you don't put yourself in dangerous situations. You're able to maintain that safety, and I think that's a huge thing that, that a lot of times gets overlooked. That there's people from Alaska that are absolutely used to that. And they can go out there and live on, the, on an island in those conditions for 10 days, but they probably don't have the elk hunting skill set to, mm -hmm. to get it done. Mm -hmm. Or there's guys that are great elk hunters that haven't been in, in that situation in those conditions that, you know, like the pilot said, you know, two, three days tops is what most people make it. And then they call and say, hey, we're ready to be picked up. And it's the conditions that do it. It's not the elk hunting is so bad that it, the elk hunting is rough, but it's just being there in those conditions and not being prepared for it. And I think physically is important, but mentally is a huge part of it. There was never a time where I thought, we're done. We're pushing the button, we're leaving. You know, whether it was before we killed, after we killed, during the packing, any of that. If we needed to stay another five days down at the lake waiting for air transport to come in 
we could have done it. I was more concerned at that point about getting Donnie out of there. Once we got the meat packed, like, hey, let's get him out and get that figured out. Because um, we didn't know. I mean, he's sitting there with the SOS button under his thumb, you know, with pressure on it a couple times. And the only option then is the Coast Guard comes in a helicopter with a long line and mm-hmm. you dangle from a long line till they can get somewhere they can land because that's, that's your only option if you want to push the SOS button. So uh, I think the mental part of it is just can't be overstated you know physically you can be as prepared as possible but mentally you just have to know i'm in it for the long haul i'm safe yes it's dangerous yes there's some elements that i don't like it's completely uncomfortable but i'm not gonna die here i'm just gonna weather it out and and make it through yeah yeah you know i'm sure you guys talk to a lot of people i know i talk to some people but you know there's a lot of people from from back east that are coming west to hunt elk, hunt mule deer, whatever the case may be. And, you know, case in point, you guys were moving through terrain that, you know, clearly you know how to navigate, but it was terrain that you were a little unfamiliar with. And so your rate, what I call rates of movement, your rates of movement were off. So you're like, oh, we could be there in (laughs) 30 minutes and it was two and a half hours. And so oftentimes what I, you know, what I hear from people is though, you know, they'll, follow one of your courses and they'll get on there and they'll do all the e-scouting and they'll drop all these pins and they'll be like, I can go here and then I can go here and here's my campsite and here's my water source and here's my glassing knob and here's a elk wallow. But the distances are just out of the realm of realistic uh, rates of movement because they either don't know the environment, they, they, haven't, they haven't tried that. Um, most people overestimate how quickly they can walk. And then you factor in kind of the, this, this, you know, this silent, tasteless, soundless thing called altitude that especially <laughs> when you're coming from back east really s- starts to kick you in the pants. Um, and so that's why I say, you know, come out and, and you know, come out and go backpacking. Come out and go bear hunting in in the area that you want to go hunting or you think you want to go hunting. Like if you guys went back to Alaska in the same place, I'm convinced you would do it a little bit different. You would plan a little bit different, but it's because you've got that familiarity now in that environment. You understand that terrain. You understand, oh, I can, you know, read the veg by the color of it, or, you know, you don't want to go below this elevation because it's just hell on earth, bushwhacking or, you know, whatever the case may be. But, you know, understanding and having that familiarity and we all get out of our comfort zone going to these new areas, but, um, you know, you can't, sometimes you can't, you can't execute the plan that you had because you just you just aren't familiar enough with that environment to to move through it uh, efficiently. Yeah, like, like I said, you know, we saw those elk from miles away, and looking at it, you know, in, in Idaho, I see an elk at two two and a half miles away. Yeah, it's steep. Yeah, it's rugged, but there's a ridge system that's going to get me there. And I can get on that ridge system and cover ground really efficiently. And so I'm looking up there going, okay, once we make it over here, I don't see a single depression anywhere. It's just a big ridge. It's above Alpine. We can just get on that and just cruise across there. And then you get there and realize it's a 20-foot drop straight down. And you're navigating you know, on your hands, climbing down through the rocks. And then up the other side with trekking poles. And then you get up there and you have to detour around another big obstacle. I mean, it's just, you can't, like you said, the unfamiliarity with it. And once we made it through, figured out how to get from our camp to the elk and then from the elk to the lake, 
it was easy navigating once we had done it. We knew where the, the downfalls, we knew where the obstacles were. Going back up the first time was a nightmare from the lake. And then we found this huge chute that had water running down. You know, I mean, there was a stream running down the chute, but it was way easier to get right in the middle of that stream and step on the rocks and use them almost like a staircase going back up the mountain rather than navigating through all the brush and the just wet, slippery terrain. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I would do it way differently. I would, I would access it from a different point. I would pack to a different point. I would camp in a different place, uh, all those things. But even knowing all that, I still, uh, the desire to go back is very, very low. Yeah, no, I, I, I was breaking out in cold sweats. I mean, I, I've, I, I'm not scared of telling you I've become hydrophobic. Like I don't even want to get, I don't even want to get in the shower half the time, uh, having lived up there for so long, but no, I, but I, I, the reason I love that film and I'm glad I, uh, I watched it again today is because it is literally a tutorial as far as I'm concerned for somebody planning almost any backcountry wilderness hunt. It doesn't matter if you're coming from Pennsylvania to Colorado or you're going from Idaho up to, you know, Alaska to hunt elk, uh, you know, the logistics, uh, the, the planning, the partnerships, like uh, the contingencies for your unplanned night out, uh, you know, the, 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 the partner being sick. Like, I mean, I'm in, in some regard, I'm sorry you had to experience that, but I appreciate it because it, it's such a you guys did such an amazing job putting that together. But like, to me, I was just like taking notes. I'm like, teachable moment, teachable moment, teachable <laughs> moment, teachable moment, um, that, that you can just take and apply in so many ways. Um, you know, for, for, I mean, let's be honest it, you know, you went from Idaho, you've been running around the West for years. I've seen you hunting in Wyoming with grizzly bears all over the place. Right. I mean, you're aware, but it doesn't bother you, you guys were still able to get it done. You went and pushed your comfort zone up in Alaska you know, and, and got the full meal deal. But if somebody's coming from Pennsylvania to go to Colorado to hunt elk for their first time, like that's just as big a leap for that person. Yeah. And I think even though the environment's different, there's so many things that you could learn from watching that film and like digging into all those different aspects that, that people could really uh, pay attention to. And I think really help them, uh, you know, on whatever next elk adventure they, they want to go on. Absolutely. So, John, with, with that being said, what were the top three things that you would critique on that and say, you should have done this different, or this would have been a better way to handle that? Yeah, so... Uh, and you're not going to hurt my feelings at all, because I know no. we weren't prepared, and there's a lot for us to learn. No, no, and like I said, it's it's very easy to be a uh, an armchair quarterback, but kind of in order of progression that I, that I kind of saw the the first one would be for me personally, especially in that environment, but just as a general statement, I never go anywhere, no matter the season, I never go anywhere without a puffy jacket. I never go anywhere without some type of wind shell. So that could be a rain jacket. It could be just a light wind shirt, something like that, a little piece of ground pad. And normally depending on the environment, either I know I can get under the tree as a shelter or I bring some type of tarp. So my point is that survival kit, right? All together, fire marking, all that kind of thing. I can ride out almost anything um, because I can, you know, I can, my survival priorities, I can seek shelter. I can get some, uh, you know, get some uh, water 
and a little bit of food. And so if I can do that and use my clothes as a first line of defense, now I'm, again, I'm not critiquing as a sense that you guys screwed up, but potentially you could have killed that bull, had those things, you did the right thing, rode out the night on top of the mountain and carried the first load of meat off. You could have done that. I think you actually made the right decision. I could tell, you know, I know you not great, but a little bit, I could tell that you were in a way, I was like, these guys are smart. They're not carrying elk off the mountain right now. Their, your priority was to take care of yourselves first. The elk can sit there. You did what you needed to, but you needed to get off the mountain. So I always try to bring the clothing, the little bit of survival kit. Obviously, the knowledge weighs nothing to, to do that. The second one I think we've discussed is I trained where my system and my clothing and sleep system integrate. I would absolutely have been in that bag uh, every night drying my clothes out. Now, this is coming from 15 years of experience in Alaska, <laughs> so a, a little bit different, right? Uh, and, and then so just clothing-wise— before, before we move no, on on that, on the, uh, the sleeping bag, so synthetic sleeping bag, you don't want to do it in a down bag. Is that correct? That, that that's correct for a couple reasons, but yeah. What about a treated down? If you have yeah, a sleeping so, bag with a treated down, so I, I can't speak to every treated down, but in my experience, especially in the environment that you're in, okay, so not you spill a cup of soup on you, but you're in a very unpermissive, hundred percent saturated environment. Treated down will work if you're just trying to push some moisture through like you were trying to dry your clothing out. Where treated down begins to falter is when it's under compression. So you have this moisture moving from your wet clothing through that insulation. We've already said it's not going to move all the way through because humid inside, humid outside. So there's going to be moisture in there. As soon as you start to roll over and compress under your elbow, compress on your back, compress on your side, there's moisture in there. Those, those feathers will begin to clump. You get clumping, you lose loft, you lose loft, you lose warmth. So... To me, the idiot-proof way, and I guess that's why I do it, is in that type of environment, I like to bring synthetic because I know worst-case scenario, if I fell in the river and everything was wet, I could wring it out. It wouldn't hold any moisture necessarily in the fiber, but that it, would, it wouldn't lose its loft and would continue to keep me warm, right? Not at 100%, but at a much better level than, than any kind of down. So that's where you're trying to pair the clothing system and the bag, right? So everybody's got to kind of figure that out from themselves. The, the only other thing I would say about the clothing is, and maybe you didn't know about it, but I would have brought, for sure, I'd have brought some vapor barrier socks because I, I just know from experience, there's no way you can keep your feet dry and your boots are going to get wet. Like you did it, the shingle layer with the, with the rain gear and, and the gaiters and everything, that was perfect, but you just, you're just going to get them wet. And, you know, you, you, you weren't walking around necessarily like you, your feet were hammered, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, but it certainly could have been a lot worse. I'm sure. Right. Like if you couldn't yeah. move, um, the, the, the only last thing just to be uh, kind of hypercritical, but I touched on this as well. Uh, you know, I don't know how you navigate, but again, knowing the terrain, having that familiarity is super, super important. But when you guys were going down that, that, uh, 
that mountain and got cliffed out. You know, maybe you could have seen it on a topo map with contour lines. Maybe you couldn't have, but but trying to trying to pick the path of least resistance to get where you want to go in that country is so critical because you can't physically see landmarks on the ground because of the vegetation. You know, as a general rule, I like to, in that country, I like to stay out of ravines and drainages. Um, cause you get in one, you might not be able to climb out. You might have a 20 foot waterfowl that doesn't show up on a 50 foot contour line. And you're kind of, you're kind of hemmed in. Um, but anyways, that like, but you guys, but again, but again, Corey, you guys made the only really right decision, which is, you know what? The hardest thing to do is climb out, and that's exactly what you had to do. So, yeah, could you always do it better? We always write down lessons learned. Um, we've all been doing this a long time, and I still screw up. I went on my first ski tour this year. I forgot stuff because I was like, ah, I don't need to write it down. I've been doing this long enough. Ah, sure enough, I forgot things. I can make it work, but what the video showed me was you guys were out there in a very difficult environment, but you, you literally just, you had the experience to play every scenario that the, the, the right way, in my opinion. So yeah. th- those no, were the that, three that, that kind of popped to mind. Yeah. And that navigation piece, you know, we, we were looking for the easiest, most direct route to get that meat down, knowing that we had a lot of meat and only two guys to pack it. And, we could see treetops, which that's, you know, you could only see 100 yards max, but we could see treetops in the fog. And I thought if there's trees there, you know, they're, they're not growing out of a cliff. They're, there's got to yep. be some kind of navigational terrain there. And then the other thing, there was an old rope tied to a tree that dropped down onto that ridge. And I thought somebody else has either came up or gone down right here before. Interesting. And who knows, you know, go, looking back, we may have been able to make it. That might've been the worst point. And from there down, it would have been easier. Now knowing what the lake looks like in the, in the daylight and without fog and rain, we wouldn't have been in a very good place on the lake. As far as where we came out, there was nothing flat. It was just rocks and, and basically an avalanche chute that came out into the lake there. So the way we ended up going was a much better route. Uh, I would have loved to have had just a clear day to stand up there and look and pick, pick that apart, but you just don't get that. And like you said, that terrain, you know, not only the vegetation being thick and not being able to see, but then you add the fog and the rain to it and hundred yards is max, even above the, the Alpine looking down on it, you just can't see. Yeah, no, it's horrible. I'll tell you though, the blacktail hunters in that country are obsessive and that's probably who put a rope there. And my guess is if you had half a deer on your back, cause you had a buddy, like you might've made a different decision at that point. Yeah. But when you got a hundred pounds of gear, dead weight, literally on your back, like, you know, that, that rope on that situation, wet, tired, like it's probably not the right situation, but you know, in yeah. a different scenario, maybe, maybe that would have made sense for somebody coming up and down that, but yeah. And had they been there before, you know, they might've ribboned out a little path and there mm-hmm. might've been a, a good little trail, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but you did a lot of things, right. That's what I, I just thought that that was just such an excellent kind of hour and a half tutorial right there. Um, like I said, don't, don't ask me the answer is no, I'm not interested ever, um, but I'm glad you did it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I did it. And I can say I did it once. And, uh, like I said, I just, I, 
there's part of me that pulls and says, I want to go back. I want to go back and experience, you know, more of, of it, of the hunt, not those conditions necessarily. But then again, there's just, it's so far. You just, you can't even in Idaho in Montana and Wyoming, we've shot elk four or five miles back in. It's like, yeah, it's no big deal. We'll put it on our backs. We'll make two trips and, and we get it out of there. It was seven hours from the kill site to our camp, and it wasn't that far to where we ended up packing it out. It still took us probably seven hours, but it was a shorter distance. But it's just there's nothing close. You can't get yeah. close to access points to, to where you're most likely going to kill something. And it's just it's not appealing. You know, there's just nothing about it. Even Even if you like to suffer, even if you like to put yourself to the test, it was just like, I can probably find a better place to... To suffer. Yeah. Well, that was your first Roosevelt. Is that true? You had to go to Alaska yeah. to do that? Yeah. I've hunted uh, twice in Oregon for him and had multiple chances. Just things didn't work out. I've actually had two shots and missed both of them due to deflection and, and uh, thick vegetation. But um, yeah, went up there and got it done on opening day. It's like easy hunting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, the, hunt, the hunting was easy. The the packing and the rest of it. Well, no, was, it was amazing. I mean, just, you know, we haven't even talked about that, but just the calling sequence and the shot and bringing them in close and being persistent. I mean, you know, that's, we kind of, you know, no pressure, but kind of come to expect that from you. But yeah, <laughs> but, but that country up there is, it, you know, the place in time to run around is, is in August chasing blacktail up there is yeah. kind of, or you, you've done that. I know you've been up there later in the year too. You've had your supper yeah. fests up there in Alaska. Oh, I've yeah. Talked, I, I, I haven't talked um, to you about it, but I've talked to another person that I know. Yeah. Yeah. Our buddy Tyler. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and bringing up Tyler, he's like Corey, you know, he's this long, lean, mountain moving machine. And <clears throat> the first time we went up there to film uh, Blacktails, the guy we went with, Jim Bachdell, he says, well, we're only gaining 1,400 vertical, but it's going to take eight hours. <laughs> and <laughs> Tyler and tell I you everything you need to know. Yeah, Tyler and I look at each other, and I'm like, Tyler, eight hours. I can't think of any 1,400-foot vertical hike that's going to take eight hours. He's like, no. Nah. And, and we kind of looked at Jim like, ah, you know, he's about seven, eight years older than me. And maybe that's why. Well, Plane drops us off. We reorganize our gear, <clears throat> lighten up for what we're going to attack the mountain with. And eight hours later, we kind of punch through the the alpine or into the alpine and and uh, did that. And then the next time we went up there, uh, Tyler was going to do it with his bow, and we uh, we had a, a PhD person, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Sophie Gilbert, with us. We're doing a film. And the first day we got there, it looked, it was so much like Corey's story. We get there, and there it is, every beautiful vista. It still took eight hours a second time. <clears throat> we get there. Next day, Sophie shoots a nice buck. Jim shoots a nice buck. And we saw this buck that was so big. And Jim has, I think, well, he's got the muzzleloader world record, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I think that's the archery world record buck there. Well, Tyler's all excited. He's like, I'm going to get this thing. It rained so hard for the next four days, you could not see across the Alpine Meadow. And so Tyler is just determined he's going to find this buck. And he never does. He never does. And I'm sure, if, like Corey said, if he would have been trying to archery hunt 
after the first day. Yeah. You're, you know, you're just wasting your time. And I've, <clears throat> I've been up there on those islands in, uh, in October and did a brown bear hunt and it rained 11 inches in six days. I mean, it was just torrential. Uh, the one thing that I've, I've brought from my adventures to Alaska, and this is probably me trying to translate how uh, or, or maybe worries or concerns I'd have is, you know, here in the lower 48, and you kind of touched on this, John, that I think people are like, well, if things really get bad, you know, the fertilizer hits the ventilator, I'll hit my button and someone will come get me. That that is not happening. Even the terrain where we sit a blacktail hunt just west of where Corey was, <clears throat> it's not nearly as 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 high as where he was. But if it's sucked in, they they aren't coming to get you. There's no place to no. land. There's uh, even with a helicopter, you know. Okay, you're augered into those 300 foot Sitka spruce. How how they gonna get you? And usually the weather is is so terrible. And so I. Anyone going to try that, whether it's a hunt like Corey did or even just that part of the world, and I'm sure the Alaska guys are fully versed in this, but don't think that that's your your emergency plan. I think Corey and Donnie showed that using the John Barclow theory that knowledge weighs nothing uh, is what gets you out of those situations and gets you through them in a safe manner, but also in a confident manner that you're not going to panic, you're not going to do something stupid. Uh, just, I was, <clears throat> when I was watching that weather and I'm watching Donnie, how sick he is, I'm like, uh, fortunately I knew the outcome, but I'm like, if you're laying there in that tent like that and you have that type of problem, there's really not an extraction measure when it's blowing and it's raining that hard. And so that's that's probably the one thing I hope that people who watch that and have this ambitious kind of evil Knievel spirit in them. All right. There's not the safety net there that you think there is if you are <laughs> You know, in the Gallatin Range of Montana, or you're in the Frank Church of Idaho, or you know wherever you you might go. But uh, I, uh, when Corey drew the tag, I was like, I'm glad it's you and not me because <laughs> I've only hauled those little Sitka blacktail off those mountains, and I don't need any more part of what that looks like. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm surprised at the number of people that that ask me if like a satellite communication device, like an inReach or a Zolio or something like that is, is worth it. And, you know, do I use that? And so, you know, you talk about the situation Donnie was in, right? I mean, the air crews, even if they want to come get you, there's conditions they can't. Like it's, it's dangerous for them, if not more than, you know, than you. So you really are completely isolated and kind of on your own and self-sufficient. But, you know, how many places in Montana, Idaho, out west here where we live, you know, you could be driving down a major freeway and lose cell service. And and people yeah. are uh, unaware of that, right? And so <laughs> let alone in a canyon, in some hellhole, you know, where you kill an elk and then something happens. And I'm like, listen, if you if you can have those, that that is what I call risk mitigation. Like, you know, we didn't even talk about that, Corey, but, you know, obviously you guys were, you know, communicating with each other. It looked like, I'm sure if you had you know, those devices you could communicate with, with loved ones, uh, you could communicate with, with the float plane base. Like, 
that is part of the risk mitigation, right? Your experience, your knowledge, your gear, like all of that starts to go in. But it's like, man, like that is cheap insurance for somebody to purchase, even in the lower 48. If you're coming out, I don't, you know, I don't, haven't been back east in a long time and uh, don't plan to anytime soon. But, but if you're out here, like it can surprise people who are uninitiated that it's like, man, that is a cheap piece of, of insurance that, that can really, you know, help keep you safe, help keep loved ones from worrying about you. I mean, I put my poor wife through hell over the years before those things existed, um, just wandering off into the, into the mountains and, you know, generally knowing where I'm going, but having no idea what, what is actually happening. Um, but yeah, you, you know, it, you are committed. You really are. Uh, you start going into those areas, you really are committed and, um, and weather, uh, which you you have all the time up there, not so much as down here, but uh, it it just grounds everything. They, even yeah. if they want to come get you, they are not. They they don't have an option. Well, in the day we flew out, we had a we had a two hour window that they could come in, and they radioed and said, "If you can tell us you'll be at the lake in an hour and a half, we'll head that way and come get you." But we have to leave by this time. And we flew back and the mountain pass we were trying to go through was fogged in. And we had to turn back and basically hit the, the bank and fly along the coast the whole way back because the, the cloud floor was too low and we couldn't make it over. And after that, so the next day when we flew out on the commercial airlines, they shut the commercial airlines down because it was too windy and too rainy to fly out. So they couldn't have got back in for six more days to that island there wasn't a break for six days after they picked us up in that two-hour window. And, you know, you have to be prepared for that, that you might, okay. you know, it might come down to the last day of your hunt and you've got to get picked up and make your flight back at the, at the commercial airport. You might not get picked up for six more days. So you can't run out of food. You've got to think about that. You've got to think about all of those things, worst case, because a lot of times worst case is what you're, you're left with. Yeah. Well, the worst case up there is oftentimes par for the course. Um, yeah. <laughs> un- un- unfortunately. Yeah. I think you should just keep talking because you're, you have, not that I wasn't convinced otherwise, but I just don't need to go up there and do that again anytime soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love Alaska. I'll go, you know, mountain goat hunt or caribou or something like that. But yeah, no, it's just, it's a special place, but it brings on a, a lot of challenges that you're just, you just don't deal with any other, you know, place down here in the lower 48, generally speaking. Yep. Well, Corey, I think now if anyone previously doubted as we relayed this story and thought that you were just trying to scare them off so that you have better draw odds, <laughs> I think John, John has uh. served as confirmation that this is not to be taken with, you know, for the, the faint of heart shall not apply. Uh, and, uh, I, I'm glad you guys made it out. Okay. I'm glad nobody got really hurt because even some of the most experienced people I know have ended up in some, some bad situations in Alaska. Alaska can just hand you things that you just, even the best sometimes are, uh, are going to have to tough out some injury or illness or just weather or whatever. So, well, in some regard, I mean, honestly, from everything you've said, I mean, literally the trip for all intents and purposes, couldn't have gone any better. Yeah. You went up there, you killed a beautiful bull. 
you had some adventure, you got out just in time, not only in the float plane, but on the commercial plane. Like really, I mean, for an Alaska adventure, it doesn't get much easier, so to speak. <laughs> no, it's true though. I mean, I mean, it all fit on the timeline. I mean, that's just it. it. All we, fit hit, on the we hit all the points, yep. and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. and I mean, looking back, you know, and I, I know there's people that have hunted there before, or that live up there that are like, oh, they're just dramatizing this. And to a degree, yeah, there's some some dramatizing going on. But every one of those points that we talked about and that John mentioned. I mean, we were one degree away from disaster in, yeah. in every one of those senses. And so, you know, yeah, it's easy to to say, well, yeah, it's not that bad. I've done that before. You know, even down here, I've been in some horrible rainstorms and blizzards and things, but it breaks down here. You get a break after a couple of days up there. There's just no break. It's relentless. It's day after day after day. And that's uh, that's hard mentally to to prepare for. And then, you know, you take Donnie. I, I'm the biggest baby when I'm sick. I'm in a 72 degree home with people waiting on me hand and foot and all the food I could want and all the medicine and access to doctors and everything with just a common cold. And I'm still the biggest baby. You think about being <laughs> sick and Donnie, I mean, he was two weeks, literally 14 days from his positive COVID test. I mean, he had to wait 14 days to travel. And we it was on the day that we traveled that he could travel. He had that. So we didn't know, is he having a reaction to COVID? And, you know, there's a lot of unknown and uncertainty there. So just the mental aspect of being stuck in a tent and knowing that your hunting partners are out in a torrential downpour packing elk meat in dangerous situations. I mean, just the, the mental stress that that adds to something like that. Then to find out, Donnie passes three kidney stones, you know, the last day we're up there. And that's that's what we finally realized was till the end. You kept this till the end to tell me. Oh my God. So he's laying in the tent with, you know, for three days with these kidney stones trying to make their way through him. And that's what was causing the sweating and the fever and the chills and all that. So I mean, just the the mental toughness. Donnie didn't pack out any elk meat. But I think he endured probably mentally more than, than John and I could imagine for what he went through. And, and he proved himself to be, I mean, such a great partner. I know he's a great friend, but he yeah. proved himself to be such a great partner out there that, you know, I mean, he's laying there in a tent by himself, passing kidney stones, but he doesn't know that, you know, catching rainwater off the top of the rain fly. Uh, self-filming himself for whatever reason, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have been that calm. I mean, the, the things I would have filmed, you couldn't have shown to, a, you know, the general public, but, uh, you know, and, and, and he's just a trooper, just a yeah. trooper. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah, he, I think in his mind, he was contributing dad jokes on video. That's, you know, he couldn't contribute to packing. So he's going to, Hey, I'm going to tell some dad jokes here in this miserable state that I'm in. And but yeah, it's, uh, and John, you know, you can't say enough about John just the, to be able to capture all that and never complain. I mean, he's out there to film. He's not there to put himself in dangerous situations with crampons and a hundred pounds of meat on his back, but he does it. And he's, uh, you know, positive attitude is such a big thing. And we try, I think for the most part, we kept a great attitude and we made it as fun as possible. And, and John didn't deter from that one bit. You know, it was always, Hey, wherever you want to go. Yeah. Just let me know. Let's, let's go that direction. Let's try that. And never, never complain. So yeah, that's, that can't be overstated enough. Just having good partners that you can rely on and, 
and be confident in them. You know, you're confident in your gear, you're confident in in uh, your abilities to survive in those conditions, and then confident in your partners that they're not going to be a weight. They're going to be a they're going to be lifting you up the whole time. Well, I mean, I, I I've been writing something about partners recently, and I mean the 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 truth is, and especially in environments like that. And, and even in the environments we run around in regularly where, you know, grizzly bears and wolves and stuff are running around. But, you know, you have to trust those people with your lives. And, and it can sound dramatic until you're in a situation like that. And then it's true, you know. Um, so, it, yeah, I, I, I don't think that can be overstated, actually. Um, strong partnerships. And, you know, if, if anything, that, that film showed me that as well. Um, you know, I didn't know, I don't know the, the camera guy. It seemed like he, uh, when he filmed himself a couple of times, he was, he was thinking some things that I wished he'd have said on camera, but uh, <laughs> they'd, I'm sure they'd have had to been bleeped, but I'm like, oh, that guy's a trooper, man. <laughs> that guy's a trooper. If I, if I had a, if I had a subtitle of what he's thinking right now, I'd be laughing, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Corey, you might want to watch out. People are going to be getting hold of you and say, hey, who's this John Abernathy guy? Can I hire him away from Corey? <laughs> Nope. <laughs> he's, uh, uh, he's been with he's me been since we were both uh, very inexperienced in, in a lot of ways. So he's a great uh, friend, and I'm very fortunate to have him tagging along on most of our adventures. Yeah, I'd okay. say so. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I uh, I was really excited that you would be you want you in your busy calendar you could find time with all the other stuff you're producing for your uh knowledge of storms platform uh the audience gets a ton out of this and Corey, uh i think that video i and i was telling Corey before the we turned on the mics i watched it again last night in full detail and it's probably the most epic elk hunt adventure elk hunt i think i've ever watched and uh at first i thought an hour and 24 minutes uh come on <laughs> no it, it it needed every hour and 24 minute to tell the depth of the story and i think people who've been there and done it and dealt with alaska probably get more out of it than folks who haven't yeah that could be that could be yeah i saw the same thing i'm like an hour and 24 minutes what are they going to talk about and it, i looked i looked down at the counter and it said 56 minutes and i was like that went by so fast like i was just like uh you know i was totally i was totally uh enthralled by the whole thing like i said sweating it the the whole time but uh also no, and that's just, pretty you lucky. know it's John told me when he first laid it out, he's like, I'm like at two hours and obviously we can cut some stuff away, but what don't you want to tell? I'm like, we have to tell the whole story. Like that's, we'll, we'll let the cards fall where they are on the, on the timeline. And that's been the comment we've got is I could have watched that for three hours. I was on the edge of my seat. Like I needed to go and, and have a drink afterwards because I was so tight and so stressed from just sitting there watching that. And that's what, you know, I, I think that's what you want to do. You want to, you want to bring people with you in those kind of films so that they feel like they're right there. And for John to be able to do that in those conditions is just a, a testament to his skill set and his talent. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it's also the first time I've ever heard a Roosevelt elk bugle. 
um, was on film because I thought you were crazy. I'm like, yeah, I bet they kind of bugle, but they're not going to respond to bugles. I've never heard one bugle. I've never hunted them in the, you know, that early in the year. But uh, th- that footage of the elk was pretty awesome. That bull yeah. coming in and that interaction was uh, pretty cool. Just raking that, raking that moss and stuff, and uh, that was pretty epic. That 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 yeah, had we shot him elk. the first calling. You know, when he first came in, if he had just came straight in, we shot him. It wouldn't have been near the the film, but the way he came in for forty minutes and just stood there in front of us and put on a rut show, uh, that that was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, John, thanks so much. We really yeah. appreciate it. Hope we can uh, lean on you more. Uh, but I I also hope everybody will go out to your platforms. I've been following along. In fact, I called you about a month or so ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm did. like, John, what? What, what the hell are you doing here? This is good stuff. Don't be giving this stuff away. But uh, people who know John Barclow know that he's all about sharing knowledge and teaching and uh, probably as unselfish of a guy as you're ever going to meet. And uh, we're thankful that you take time to share that knowledge with, with our audience and with us. So appreciate it, John. Oh, it's, it's always so much fun talking to you guys. I appreciate you asking me to come on and talk again. Yeah, we'll put a link uh, to the website in the notes and and uh, make sure people can find it. But it's knowledgefromstorms.com. Yep, that's it. All all together. So. And if you sign up, I've been pushing out a, a monthly newsletter and there's a trip planning form they can get there, all that stuff. So, yeah, a lot of good stuff there. More to come. Awesome. Awesome. John, thank you. Thanks, John. Corey, have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone.